Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Man, way to praise the Lord, NBC. Awesome this morning. Uh, we got teens coming back from CIY, and even though they can barely see because their eyes are half shut, they're here and they're giving God praise. And then we got the rest of y'all showing up today uh, with your worship shoes on. So praise God for that. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I've been out of the pulpit for the last uh, few weeks, just kind of uh, checking out things inside the church, getting a little R&R in the middle and, and everything, but I've been blessed to play on the NBC softball teams. That's been fun. And uh, to get to hang out with a bunch of you guys uh, different times. And our church, as is often the custom here, we're, we're leaning into the social side of things. We use this as a, a time of connection with one another. Uh, and, and today, we get to, the blessing of being able to go to Encinitas uh, and to watch several people give their lives to Jesus in baptism today. Yeah, praise God. Uh, that is one thing about ministry and being a Christian that never, I mean, never gets old. Ever, 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 ever gets old. Uh, is watching somebody come out of the water, uh, arms in the air, smiling, feeling like, man, uh, my life is different now. And it is. And so I look forward to that later this afternoon. And then this will be the uh, initial little unveil, if you will, of uh, next year in 2023. Those of you who want to go, uh, if you are, are willing to do it, we have NBC's first tour of Israel uh, coming up next week. Yeah. So um, my wife and I, Emily, and the Iversons, DJ and Stacy, are going to be the, your, your humble guides along the way. Uh, and we're going to go to all of the different places uh, that you would think it starts in Bethlehem, uh, ends in Jerusalem. Uh, I guess. So we're going we're gonna to go to all the places that you see uh, Jesus traveled throughout his life from his birthplace to the other. And one of the places that for me was the most special was Capernaum. And that's where you can you go. And it's funny because Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law's house is right there. You can go walk into the thing and look down and see kind of the, the ruins of the house there. But that is where Jesus likely called uh, Peter, in our not-so-superhero of today, Andrew, to follow him. So we're going to talk about Andrew today. We'll be in John chapter 1. If you have a Bible, go ahead and, and get it open. But you can go stand there uh, and just think about what it would be like to have Jesus walk along the shore and say, hey, come follow me, drop your nets, come follow me, and how incredible it was to think. I'm probably standing within 100 feet of where that, wherever that went down. Um, to be able to stand, as we'll talk about a little bit later on, uh, where Peter would deny Caiaphas later, or Caiaphas's house out on the, the patio there, deny Christ three times, right? As Jesus walks across and hears him say it, you can just picture it in your mind, right? It's, it's just an unbelievable thing. So if you can make it, uh, the website, it's on our website. You can go to newvintagesd.org and, and register. Uh, you need to put a deposit down before we can hold your slot and everything, but it's all inclusive. Uh, so by all means, if you want to go, let's go. It'll be a blast next February 28th and following. All right, so we're in a series called Not So Superheroes, and today, again, we're looking at, at Andrew, but uh, if Andrew were to be given a name as a superhero, I believe he would be called Quiet Man. Uh, he has two sentences in all the Bible, but they are important. Few know much about Andrew other than the fact that his brother was Peter. So he's one of those guys that probably went around to parties and stuff, and everybody goes, oh, you're Peter's brother. You know, uh, some of you may have famous relatives or friends or people of some influence. I'm getting to the point now where I'm known as Anna or Olivia's dad wherever I go, Nora's dad. Um, I, I'm starting to get swallowed up in my daughter's uh, 
everybody knows them, and, and it's like, who's Tim? Which is, is kind of wonderful. I like that, actually, to be able to be proud of your kids. But imagine with me, if you would, what it's like to be Austin and Claire Swift, uh, the mother and father of Taylor Swift. And to go to a party or something like that and have everybody, they'll recognize your last name. And then the next question is, oh, are you Taylor's parents? And it's probably, back when she was 14, 15, that was probably fun. And they were probably proud. But you got to think at this point, uh, they know what's coming next, which is, hey, do you, do you think you could get her to sign this for me? Or do you think you could do whatever to where their lives become swallowed up in her identity? I wonder if Andrew ever felt that way. I don't know for sure. You definitely, in looking at scriptures, get the sense he never felt that way, which is one of the things that makes him amazing. Andrew seems completely unbothered by Peter's fame or the attention he seems to receive from Jesus, even at the moment they're called. Jesus seems to turn directly to Peter, pass over Andrew. Andrew seems comfortable playing second fiddle in the symphony of life, be a behind-the-scenes apostle, but that doesn't mean that he has limited impact. If you open up the Anchor Bible Dictionary, which is this massive 12 to 15 volume uh, Bible dictionary, it's kind of viewed as the gold standard of scholarly Bible dictionaries. So if you go to seminary or something like that, they're going to they're gonna roll out the Anchor Bible Dictionary for you. And when they do, you'll open up the A to C volume for Andrew, and you will turn to his article. It's in the middle of about 2,000 pages per volume of this thing. It's massive. And you open it up, and here's how the article on Andrew starts. The New Testament shows little interest in Andrew. <laughs> I mean, come on, dude. That's how they introduced the man? Well, you gotta, he's an apostle. That's how they started. The New Testament has little interest in Andrew. His name occurs only 12 times, four of these merely in lists of apostles. So he gets his name called just because they're taking role, basically. That's a third of the time that he pops up. I mean, how would you like that as your descriptor? The family showed little interest in Tim, right? <laughs> or, uh, uh, you know, with, with the, the business records show little interest in Bill. Little interest. Little interest. Nobody would want that. I mean, little interest. Who really wants somebody to, I don't. I really want you to show very little interest in me. We love having people show interest in us. We have birthdays, Father's Days, Mother's Days. We have all sorts of holidays to celebrate everything. We have National Groundhog Day, National Male Day, National Female Day, uh, National Soccer Day, National whatever. Anything we can celebrate, show interest in, we want to show interest. Andrew, little interest in the New Testament. Now, in the Gospel of John, John seems to kind of give Andrew a little bit of a nudge here and there, because he's the first apostle called. The first. The reason you didn't know that is because the New Testament shows little interest in Andrew, okay? <laughs> he, he just happens to be there. He, he, he comes across like a fern in the corner of the office or something. He's not a guy that's at the middle of things, the way he's described but he's the first one called, and he brings his better-known brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And his other line, so one is to tell Peter he's found the Messiah. The other one is in the feeding of the 5,000 narrative when Jesus already knows what he's going to do, and he calls Philip, and he says, uh, I don't know, Philip, what do you think we're going to do about all these hungry people? And Andrew's the one that points out the boy with the loaves and the fish. Hey, he's got something. 
I don't know what good it's going to do, but here's some loaves and fish. Jesus, if anybody can do something, you can. And other than that, the New Testament shows little interest in Andrew. The funny part is, is that in the uh, second century, there was a, a book floating around outside the Bible, uh, and it was called The Acts of Andrew. It circulated in the second century after the, time that, uh, after the canon of, of Scripture was closed, and it purported to be written by or about Andrew. But the early church rejected it because of, get this, its excessive verbosity. They knew it wasn't Andrew because of how talkative it was, because it was verbose. And they go, that, that, that ain't Andrew. That wasn't Andrew. This ain't written by Andrew. This is bogus. Church history holds, as far as we know, Andrew was conver uh, converted a woman by the name of Maximilla, who was the wife of the proconsul Aegeides at the time. And the problem was Maximilla took her new faith to heart and refused then to have sex with her husband, which upset him to the point that he crucified Andrew. And so Andrew's crucified at, by request on his side because he doesn't want to, similar to Peter, it was crucified upside down. Tradition holds he was crucified on his side. So if you ever see a picture of what's known as St. Andrew's cross, that's the symbolism there. Kind of diagonally as a cross would be laid on its side. When the Orthodox Catholic split takes place between Byzantium and Rome, Byzantium claims Andrew as its founder, while Romans keep Peter. They choose Andrew, they say, because he was first. That's right, he was first. And despite being first, he seems to be last, or at least something far from first. So what happened? Did he, did he do something wrong? Uh, did he uh, upset Jesus somehow? Did he do something that would make him less than? Raise your hand if you're in the room and you have ever seen a movie starring Thelma Ritter. Anybody? Hmm. Uh, how about William or Walter Brennan? Anybody? Hey, we got three out of the whole day. Walter Brennan, Thelma Ritter, hold the record for Best Supporting Actor and Actress nominations. Thelma Ritter was nominated six times for Best Supporting Actress, won none. But she's the record. Nobody knows who she is. She was apparently a very good supporter. Walter maybe did a little bit better because uh, he has three people out of uh, 500 a day that, that know that he's uh, somebody. He existed. Uh, and you may be mistaken, <laughs> so who knows? Maybe he didn't even have that. But there he is, right? I think he had five. But nobody remembers him. Not like they would somebody from the same era, a Laurence Olivier or somebody who was a, a leading man, a, a leading woman. Those are the ones we remember. The leaders, the leading people. Hey, everybody, let's, let's all learn to become better leaders. And what we mean by that is not necessarily all stripes of leadership, including the quiet kind, but what we mean is the kind that find themselves on stages and under spotlights. The ones with big voices, influential voices, lots of followers, lots of influence. Not the kind that life would show very little interest in. But what we're going to learn is that in God's grand story, He uses all sorts of actors and actresses, people who play roles of all kinds to further His purposes. And this becomes abundantly clear through the life of today's not-so-superhero, our good man, Andrew. Ironically, after the service today, I met two guys named Andrew in the lobby, neither said a thing. And our quiet electric guitar player is named Andrew, and he barely talks. So 
this seems to be something that goes with the name. Um, and so here's how the call takes place. We have John 1, uh, verses 35 to 42. Let's read together. The next day again, John, this is John the Baptist, by the way, not the apostle. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So they leave John and go to Jesus, okay? That becomes important later. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. There it is, right? They can't just say Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Oh, yeah, Pete's brother. Yeah, I remember him. Uh, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So even there, here comes Andrew with Peter. He goes, thanks, Andrew. Peter. That seems a bit rude, maybe. Andrew doesn't get his name changed. But the first thing Andrew does, and I think this is important, when he hears John the Baptist, who, who he's following, say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he leaves John and goes to Jesus. And it becomes fairly obvious after staying with Jesus that he's the Messiah, and the first thing he does is go tell his brother Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. And so then Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right. All right. We don't have a lot to work with here. After all, the New Testament shows very little interest in Andrew. Uh, I think we can surmise a few things. Let's start. God's story has roles for all kinds of actors and actresses. Yes, Andrew becomes Robin before there's even a Batman. I mean, if Andrew were music, he would be maybe a one-hit wonder. Jesus Jones, an aha, a chumbawamba, a daft punk, somebody who is maybe all featured on tracks, but never writes his own music and never really gets any credit for the music writing his own. Most of the stories of the Bible are starring somebody else, featuring Andrew. Paul Revere, that's who he is if we were going to use history. He's the guy that tells others what they need to know, but stories of him and the battle itself are few and far between. But we also learn that not everybody has to be George Washington for us to win the war. And yet, without Paul Revere, the whole war might end differently. The story of Washington and the war probably could, leave, could read very differently than the way that it ends up happening. We all might be singing Hail to the Queen to this day. See, in the kingdom of God, and this is what the benefit of reading all of Scripture as opposed to picking out selected little verses and and uh, zeroing in on an inspiration for the day and zeroing in, but getting a picture, of the large picture of, of the Bible, as you realize how many different kinds of people God uses, from the sinful to the very upstanding and righteous, uh, from prostitutes to princes. He uses all of them. 
And in this particular case, when he calls his apostles, he calls tax collectors, he calls guys like Andrew, very quiet followers who are devout and loyal and are willing to take whatever few words they're going to say and use them in the best way they can by saying to somebody else, we found the Messiah. If you were only going to say that, if, that, if you were only going to get one sentence in the Bible, that's not a bad sentence. That's a good sentence. Many different kinds of people play very, very important roles. And I'm going I'm to say something now that I need you to bear with me for just a second while I explain it, because at first it sounds wrong, but it's not. It's right, biblically. I believe so. What we share is more important than who shares it. What we share is more important than who shares it. Now, the gospel's power uh, can be sapped to some extent by us living lives that lack integrity, so the hearer refuses to listen. But the gospel itself is greater than the messenger. And we have a saying, and we throw these little cliches around, I know what we mean by them. The motives are good. Things like this. You may be the only Bible some people will ever read. Or we quote St. Francis of Assisi, who did not say this, but we quote him anyway. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the infamous, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Right? The idea that the way that you live uh, is what matters. I'm not suggesting in everything I'm about to say, that those who bear witness to Jesus should not pay attention to how they live. I hope you can take for granted that I believe in living a life of integrity. If you go to church here more than just now, you will hear that ad nauseum every week. You must live a life of integrity. God calls us to that. Having said that, the message is greater than the messenger. Your righteousness is not a prerequisite for your ability to share the gospel. If it were... This world would be silent. The beauty of the gospel is that it is consistent. So we don't need to be fork-tongued in how we, how we share it, right? On the one hand, saying to everybody, hey, come to Jesus. He'll forgive all your sins, and he can change your life. And on the other hand, saying, if you've sinned, please don't preach the gospel. I hope the gospel is greater than those of us who preach it. Because if it's not, we're in a lot of trouble. I know myself, and I know those who preach it. We do our best to live lives of integrity. Uh, we believe in, the, in, in what it is that we preach, and we should always try to do that. Don't make a mistake in what I'm trying to say here. But my good man Paul backs me up here. In Philippians chapter 1, really strange way to start a book. Paul stands up, and he talks about how there are guys out there that are talking bad about Paul, they're preaching the gospel with bad motives, very self-serving motives. And you know what he says? Something that first time I read it and I actually paid attention to it, I disagreed with him. He says, you know what? I rejoice in the fact that regardless of their motives, the gospel is being preached. It's his way of saying, yes, they're doing it for self-serving purposes, but at least what they're saying is true. The message matters. Yes, our lives matter. But the message is greater than the practitioner, and that's what gives Andrew so much power. He didn't have to be loud. He didn't need spotlights. He doesn't need a stage. He doesn't need anything. 
He's just a good-hearted guy with integrity that is willing to use whatever few words he's got to point Peter to Jesus. And then Peter, keep this in mind, Mr. Peter, you know, the guy that basically Andrew's known as the brother of Peter. Oh, Peter, 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 what a fire-breathing dragon of faith he is. Yes, from Acts 2 on. But if you read the Gospels, Peter is a, is a guy with no filter, He's zero filter. He is a ready, fire, aim speaker. He does not, he talks and then hopes for the best. He appears to be somebody who is not particularly thoughtful, and yet God, through Christ, says to him, look, you are the rock on whom I'm going to build my church. Peter denied, I stood right there with my own two feet where he denied Jesus three times in a row. Three times. And for what I guess is two minutes time. Oh, beacon of faith indeed. And if we served a God who said, well, you did that, so nobody can listen to what you have to say anymore, then the history of Christianity would read quite differently. But that's not who God is. God in Christ finds a way to get through to Peter, to forgive Peter, to restore Peter, understanding that he wasn't wrong, that, that the Holy Spirit working through broken people is how the gospel gets shared. And ironically, it's seeing the power of God at work in people who are ordinary, uneducated people is how the gospel is shared throughout the earth. Yes, Andrew's matter, Peter's matter, David's matter, Moses's matter. Esther's matter, Mordecai's matter. Matthew's matter, Simon the Zealot's matter. Rahab matters, Abel matters. They all matter. Rahab was a prostitute, okay? And is in the hall of fame of faith that you see in Hebrews. God has a way of taking a rather sorry lot and turning them into something that's more like a like a diamond over here. So what I'm saying is not, don't live a life of integrity, it really doesn't matter. No, 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 no. Because, but what changes there is that the listener is impacted by our lack of witness. It is an affront to God, but in sharing the gospel, what causes the problem is that nobody wants to listen to a hypocrite, <laughs> right? Okay, you're actively living against what you're preaching. Why should I listen to you? But let me illustrate this for you. I don't even think we believe that. I think we use that as an excuse to not have to listen a lot. Somebody came through the doors right now, the Grand, and they said, hey, listen, there's a car parked out on Grand, and somebody just smashed the window of it and lit it on fire. And, you, and they quote the make and model and license plate of it. You recognize it as your car. You get up and you leave. You know what you probably wouldn't do? Do a background check on the guy who came in the back of the building. You would take off because of the urgency of the matter. You would just go. Right? So why do we get this idea that everybody who preaches the gospel has to be, let me, let me see your resume. Well, you're teaching the Bible. Do you have diplomas? You know how many idiots I know with diplomas? I mean, I'm telling you what, the dumbest people in, that, that say stuff about religion today are people with the most wallpaper. And I got my share of wallpaper. But I look at that, and I go, and I go no, man, that's, a, that's one of the cheapest laymen. All that means is you had, probably had parents that had enough money to send you to school for 12 or 15 years, and you stuck with it long enough 
that you, you did it. But then after you get that, you can say the single stupidest things on the planet with no basis or fact, and people will drink it like Kool-Aid because you got wallpaper. Okay? No. Okay? You can spout complete nonsense with PhDs from Harvard, Yale, Brown, wherever, and you can be unequivocally true and wise as a child. That's what, the, that's what the Bible actually says. So unless you've got faith like a child, Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me just add to this a little bit more. We are preaching good news, not bad news. We are saying that this is the best news that the world will ever know. And we're also saying it is bigger than we are. The good news of Jesus is... Uh, transcontinental, it is something that, it, when it's shared, uh, brings good news to the poor, the lame, the blind, and yes, even the rich guy. Everybody. It's for all. God does not just use the eloquent, the most perfect, most impressive people around to share Jesus with others. You can't honestly read the Bible and believe that. It's always the Samaritan woman at the well or Zacchaeus, or these, these people that often are outcasts in society that he uses. And if it really took a polished resume to be a gospel speaker, boy, would we be in trouble. Jesus says quite explicitly in Luke 4 that he's coming to proclaim good news to those people. Okay, Now, that doesn't mean it's not for everybody, but he's saying in the past, good news hasn't made its way all the way down the ladder. I'm here to make sure it does. And so those, the prisoner, the prisoner, you mean to tell me that he's here to proclaim good news to somebody who's in jail? How are you even doing that? Don't you know they're supposed to be perfect? He's there, and I, I don't want to make, put so much emphasis on this that you think again that I'm saying that righteousness doesn't matter. What I'm saying is it's through Christ that a person is made righteous. It is not get your life together. And I've heard people say this. Well, you know what? When you get your life together, then you can be baptized. That defeats the whole point. <laughs> defeats the whole point. Baptism is a moment when you realize and you, you say, my life is a complete train wreck, God. I'm depending on your power and you, the, the righteousness of Christ's blood to forgive my sins, but also to transform me from, from who I am into who I know you believe I can be. And I believe by faith, that you can help through the power of the Holy Spirit, get me there. But I've tried on my own, and guess what? It ain't gone so hot. And maybe you go, I haven't even tried before, but I know myself well enough to know I got zero shot of that happening without the power of God at work within me. See, God doesn't just use the Simon Peters of the world. Peter himself's kind of a mess. He's up and down, and by the time you get to Acts 2 and on, he's a legend, and he's awesome. But if Andrew doesn't use his word to say, Pete, we found the Messiah, then what? How does the rest of the Bible read then? Maybe he replaces Peter with somebody else. Maybe he gives Andrew a bunch of Red Bull and Andrew becomes Peter. Who knows, right? <laughs> Who knows? The lesson that Andrew gives us is the lesson he gets from his mentor, John the Baptist, the one he's following when Jesus finds him. He must increase, I must decrease. 
Y'all ever been to a wedding at toast time? And uh, let's say the, the chief bridesmaid or whatever you call her, maid of honor, something like that. I've been to enough weddings. I should know this by now. <laughs> chief bridesmaid. Or the bridegroom's guy, the best man. They get to toast time, and maybe they got the party started a little early. And so they're there and tipsy, and they hoist the glass up, and they start talking. And they start talking in ways that let you know, ah, this really is not about the groom, is it? It's about you. They start talking about, oh, you know, um, the groom really wouldn't be where he is without me. Uh, you know, um, the, uh, I've known the groom longer than anybody else in this room. Liar, his parents have known him longer. But they'll say those kinds of things. Or they'll talk about every other subject except honoring the couple. I mean, I've watched preachers do it when they do the wedding ceremony. Uh, I've watched parents organizing the wedding, make it about them. I've watched venue managers do it with the venue, an inanimate object. Isn't it great that the wedding today is at the Four Seasons Laguna Beach, everything, and we here at the Four Seasons Laguna Beach are very happy to have your wedding here at the Four Seasons of Laguna Beach. And on and on and on it goes, right? It's like, oh, it's about the venue. I got you. No. So in John 3, because we have this propensity to drift towards self-importance if our pride and insecurity is not baptized with our bodies, we just do. John the Baptist has his disciples come back to him and they go, John, we got a problem. Everybody's leaving you and going and following Jesus. And you know the analogy he uses? Best man language. He goes, does the friend of the groom resent the sound of the groom's voice? He's like, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. He says, yes, people leaving me to go follow Jesus, that's exactly what I want. Now, who does that? Who has power and influence? Who, is, who is, would give that away on purpose to somebody else? Now, we often will give away influence to people we don't think are ever going to be competitors. We'll be up on the 12th floor socially, and we'll send the elevator back down for you to ride it from the first to the third. But if you're on the 11th, I ain't sending that elevator down. John the Baptist is the man at the time, not Jesus. And he's the one saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And he just says it. And to where his own people are leaving him and going to follow Jesus. And then they come back and they go, John, if you're not careful, you're not going to have any followers left. And he basically says, good, as long as they're following him. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Andrew is a positive example of what humility looks like in the life of a disciple. He seems to take to heart what John the Baptist says, who Andrew is following, what he says about Jesus, 
And when John's disciples are concerned that everybody's following Jesus instead of John, he listens to what John the Baptist says, which is the best man doesn't get upset when he hears the groom's voice. He's delighted. I'm thrilled. He must increase. I must decrease. And he shows us there. John the Baptist does. And then Andrew's a chip off the old block. Now it's starting to make sense. How could he go in and play second fiddle to Peter? He followed a guy who, who rejoiced in being the second fiddle for the people that God had called. I mean, imagine a world where no one cared who got the credit for anything. People just simply went around doing good. Imagine a world where every politician got up behind the microphone and when something positive happened, said, I know everybody's saying that I did this, but really it was a team effort. Everybody in America, this is a win for us all. I mean, our, our TVs would explode. We would go into full-blown meltdown sequence. Imagine a world where people just went around doing good and they didn't care who got the credit for it. That's a, that kind of a world is pictured is what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. It's about the groom. It's about the groom. It's about the groom. Hey, look at me here. It's about the groom. We, all glory goes there, and yes, I want to be careful here. There are times where honor, I mean, the Bible talks about it, Proverbs 3.27, give honor to whom honor is due. Yes. I'm going to do that here in a second. But there is somebody to whom all honor is due. His name is Jesus. Big J, big E, big S, U-S. All honor. So when a person or a Christian affirms somebody else or tells them good job or, or hey, way to go today or, hey, you know, whether it's, whether it's good sermon or way to, way to get that kid to calm down that was screaming bloody murder in the kid's wing or, hey, Thanks for being so warm to people when they come into the service. Hey, great job on sound and lights and, you know, whatever. Whatever, whoever it is, that's all great. And I think God does it. But the understanding underneath it is we are all servants of Christ. You don't know Don and Nancy Page. Most of you don't because they haven't been to church here since COVID. In a second, you're going to eat some communion bread that they made with their hands. Like handmade since day one of our church starting. I gave Nancy the little recipe from the little church I grew up in. You don't have to, th you know, you don't really think about where communion bread comes from until you start a church. And you're like, where are we going to get our bread? Do we go with the generic, like, you know, nasty burnt wafer thing? Do we go, you know, you, you don't really know. And I said, no, no, no. The little church I grew up in had amazing bread. So amazing kids would, would trample each other trying to get to the leftovers in the kitchen and get busted for it by the parents. They were willing to take the penalty for the crime if they were found, all right? <laughs> so I go, let's make that bread. So I gave Nancy the recipe, uh, and, and week two, we hadn't even launched. So for even four months before we launched in April, Nancy and Don have made that bread in their oven at their house for 12 years. If they go on vacation, they make it ahead of time and give it to somebody else to bring it here. They ran our prayer ministry for years. 
Even this week, I got a text from Nancy encouraging me, quoting scripture to me, telling me she and Don were praying for me. You know, and uh, I, I was telling this story about them at the, at the first service, and I, I said to the, to the folks on, on camera, I said, hey, I hope they're hearing this. She texted me between the services and said, we were watching, thank you, you know. <laughs> All right, but I sit there and I go, someday I'm going to get to heaven, and God will reveal to me how many things in my life, tragedies were averted or blessings came because the pages prayed for me, because the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. And what, my parents, and some of you, and all of that, right? And, and I couldn't drag Don and Nancy onto this stage. Like, I, I, there's no amount of money I could pay them. Uh, even threat of violence, they might just say, go ahead and do me in. I don't care. I'm not going to that stage. They are the most, they are Andrews if there's ever been an Andrew. An Andrew and, and Andrea, I guess, right? They are totally quiet, humble servants. They used to stand out front, pass out bulletins. They used to do all that stuff, right? You know, I could go on and on and on with people that do that here. So when things go well in the church, a lot of times I'll get a lot more credit than I deserve when in reality it's the Andrews that make it happen. It's the people that make sure the bathrooms are clean on Sunday morning when you guys come in. It's people who, you know, they volunteer over in the children's ministry and hold somebody's crying baby for an hour and a half. Right? Changing diapers of, of kids that aren't even theirs. I could barely change my own kids' diapers, much less somebody else's. You know, that kind of stuff, and, no, and nobody knows it, right? People that run lights that you don't know who they are, Landrews. But that's the body of Christ. If everyone was an eye, where would the sense of smell be? You wouldn't have one, right? So God, in all of his wisdom, decides, you know what? I can't have 12 Peters. I need a Peter, I need an Andrew, I need a James, I need a John, I need a Matthew. And that group of followers becomes a microcosm of what will later become the body of Christ. we got guys who are full of courage and, and they have a good sense. I mean, security. Do you guys have any idea what our security team deals with on a, on a weekend here? I'm glad you don't, but that's a sign they're doing their job well. Uh, you know, the stuff they have to deal with when they could just go play golf. Right? Andrews. I just find them inspiring and amazing. All right, I got to hustle here. Andrews' next contribution comes at the feeding of the 5,000. I'm just going to read the text, uh, and the sermon will be yours here. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? This is John 6, 5 to 10. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what they would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there was a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. All right. So uh, it's Andrew that seems to, even though he's like, I don't know how he's going to do it, He's the one that seems to, when, when Jesus is testing Philip, well, where are we going to, you see all these hungry people, where are we going to get them? Andrew's the one that says, hey, here's some loaves and some fish. Let's get them to Jesus and see what he can do with them. That's his second sentence. When you found the Messiah, nothing else really matters. And it's the faithful quietness 
of Andrew that allows for the loudness of Jesus' miracle to shine through. Where did this come from? Was, was he just an introvert? Was he just a two on the Enneagram? Was he a, was he a INFP on the Myers-Briggs? Was he a, a high S on the disc? Was it that? I think it was that he started out following John the Baptist, who taught him the single greatest message in all of Christianity. He must increase, I must decrease. And Andrew understood full well it isn't the bigness of the disciple that matters, it's the bigness of Christ that is most important. It just is. And so now we, who have found the Messiah, can share in it in front of thousands with flair, as Peter might do, or we can say it in a sentence to our relatives. We could say it with a booming baritone voice or a scratchy female voice. We can whisper it. We can shout it. We can do any of that stuff. But the words need to resemble something like that. He must increase. We must decrease. Come, we found the Messiah. And let's remember, sisters and brothers, we're speaking good news. The reason you need to get your rear end down to the beach today, all right, and watch these baptisms, is to remind yourself of how good the news is. If you see a frown coming out of that water, I don't know how many thousands of baptisms I've witnessed or participated in, but it's a lot. Never seen one frown. Nope. All smiles. I see tears of joy. I see smiles. I see arms raised, uh, occasionally shivering if it's February because uh, we do them in the ocean. But everybody's happy. And the reason they are is because the light just came on. Like, it's like the scales don't just fall from their eyes. It's their ears too. They hear stuff differently. The news we're sharing is good news, folks. I don't care what the culture around us says. It's the best news the world has ever heard, and billions of people over centuries now have borne witness to the fact he's the Messiah and that your life, not just your sins washed away, but your life can be different and transformed by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to show, as we prepare for communion, a video. It's an old video, so it's a little grainy, but I think the message of it gets through fine. Um, it's simply a video showing people who have been deaf their entire life hearing for the first time. Some of you may have seen videos like this, but I want you to take, watch their expression, and then I want you to think about people for whom the light bulb of faith goes on for the very first time. And may, you may remember your own, but the expression is often very similar when they realize, you mean to tell me that that Jesus paid for my sins and that they're forgiven and that I don't, I don't have to live the way I've been living and I can be changed for the better. Yes. Boom. You can just see it. Come on. And how the lives are changed. Don't ever, sisters and brothers, we cannot forget how good the news we're sharing is. With that in mind, take a look at the screen and I'll, I'll come back and praise in the community. Voting. First, First hearing aid. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the, the big this moment the big here. Moment. She's going to hear something. We don't really know what. I'm going to roll this on after pushing you in just a little bit. There you go. Sleeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> Can you tell?
Did you hear it? I know I look like an elderly munchkin, but do I sound like one now? <laughs> So what I want us to remember as we're doing this is that we're sharing good news and when people hear it for the first time, like we don't need to go live, you know, ordinary lives of, of sin and stuff that impact the ability of them to hear the gospel. But when they hear it, you know, it's what keeps, keeps me in ministry as long as I have and whatever is, is that look. It's the, I just heard the great news of Jesus and I, I get it now. So don't waste your words in this life. Let's not waste our words. Let's not, let's not try to find the spotlight in the stage. Let's try to find the attitude of he must increase, I must decrease. We're going to take communion now, and you should have gotten the elements when you came in. If you didn't and you want to put your hand in the air, uh, go ahead. We'll bring it to you. That's fine. But I want to offer a prayer, uh, kind of a prayer for the Thanks for the Andrews among us and the Peters and, and everybody else among us. Uh, I know it's a little hard on Peter today, but um, the body of Christ is such a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, to watch. And the good news is so, so good. We celebrate that this morning. If you need it, go ahead and raise your hand and Jason here will bring it to you. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now with bread and cup, we say thank you. We say thank you for speaking our name. Thank you for forgiving our sins and for leading us toward transformation by the power of your spirit. Uh, Father, for the ability to say the most beautiful words ever spoken, we have found the Messiah. We give you thanks. And we ask, Father, for the courage to speak them friends, relatives, strangers, anybody whose path you put us in, Father. Uh, 
forgive us for times when we lack courage. But give us, Father, the, the boldness of Andrew, the humility of Andrew, uh, so that, Father, we can be faithful as we share the greatest news this world will ever know. We pray this in Jesus' name.